Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. My guest is Uyghurs Julio Ribeiro, the co-founder and CEO of Inventure Life Science, the med tech company behind the 3D bioprinter technology creating realistic replicas of tumours for testing cancer treatments. Now, Julio grew up in Brazil, where he became interested in and studied biology and genetics. And in the 90s, he migrated to Australia to do his PhD in medicine. After working for a scientific tech supply company, he saw a gap in the market and knew that the science field had the potential to make life a lot better. So he started his company, Inventure Life Science. Julio saw the tech side of things develop quickly, but medicine was being left behind. So Inventure developed the bioprinting platform, Rastrum, to print 3D cell models in high quantity with a gel that mimics human tissue, enabling medical researchers to do high quality experiments into cancer treatment on 3D models, just the same as they appear in your body. In the past, creating 3D cell structures through bioprinting was a manual and time-consuming task. So the Rastrum 3D bioprinter has the potential to revolutionise biomedical research. So what the potential of what Julio is doing is the ability to build fast, efficiently, uniformly and with certainty 3D proxies of cell structures using this printer that can have experiments done on them quickly in order to cure either cancer or, for that matter, something like the coronavirus. In other words, find the treatments that work best. This is quite complex, but it is a good example of how science is married with technology to build disruptive businesses. So let's get into it. Julio Ribeiro, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you. Nice to be here, yeah. That's an unusual name, so you better tell me what's your background. Yes, I'm from Brazil. You're Brazilian? Yeah. And uh, like, how did you get to Australia? Like, how did that all work out? All right, I, I did an engineering degree in Brazil when I was you know, at uni. Yeah. And then I, it was agricultural engineering, and then I did- Agricultural my, engineering, yeah, yep. Yeah. And uh, after I finished my graduation, I was enjoying the uni so much that I decided to stay to do master in science. In Australia? In Brazil. Oh, in Brazil, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went to a very, very nice university in Brazil. It was a very prestigious, uh, famous university there in the countryside, far from any city. It's a very nice lifestyle. And, and you campus. did a master's yeah. degree? Yeah, in, in my university, they were very famous in Brazil for uh, developing seeds for plants, like they have yep. a very strong breeding program. But I chose to study genetics of bacteria instead of uh, plant genetics. Bacterial genetics. Just explain something to me. Um, yeah. Is it because Brazil has a 
like a big farming community? Is, is yeah, that... it's a big, it's a big uh, agricultural country. Probably large part of the crops. Brazil is always the top producer in the world. No, it's probably one of the top producers of soybean, corn, coffee, sugarcane, rice. Many cultures, Brazil is in the top producing beef, and it's a very, is that right? very right. modern agriculture. I know in beef because my farm we have um, Brahmins, and I know that um, Brazil is very famous for um, producing high quality Brahmin yeah. cattle. Actually, that's an interesting story because um, I'll tell you a little bit more later, but I have a company in Queensland that we do IVF for the Brahma, for the farmers there in Queensland. I created that. And to create that here, I have to bring a group of Brazilian scientists and in vets to develop it here because there was no no one in Australia with the skills to do that here. Yeah, because I know when we um, try to get our, um, we found it very difficult to, to get a geneticist who could actually help us out in, my farm is in northern New South Wales. Yeah. Very difficult for me to get a geneticist for it to our stud to uh, help us work out a Brahmin geneticist, oh, like a, yeah. in order to tell us uh-huh. about the you know what we're breeding and why we're breeding them. And it's also very difficult to get the genetics out of Brazil in yeah, Australia, yeah. And, and even harder to bring a bull over or something like that. That's pretty much impossible. Quarantine issue, yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that the sort of stuff that you studied in terms of bacteria genetics? No, no. Um, I finished my engineering because I have a lot of biology in the engineering and most of the people in my universe on this breeding program would go to plant breeding, corn breeding or soybean. Uh, Brazil has decided to produce alcohol to supply its petrol station to run the cars uh, with the cries that was in the Gulf early 70s. And that program was very intense and Brazil produced now most of the cars in Brazil runs in alcohol. As in, like, as in ethanol? Ethanol, yeah. yeah. And ethanol used, uh, yeast is like a, a fungus yep. to s- ferment the sugarcane. The idea in my university is to use bacteria that's a much more efficient fermentator than yeast. fungus. And then the yeast. And then I was in the project of studying the genetics of that bacteria, how that bacteria produce alcohol. What's the biochemical pathway for the bacteria to ferment alcohol? Is the production of the alcohol from the bacteria and or the yeast or the bacteria, is that like, um, do they, do they ex- expel the, bac- the yeah, alcohol? Yeah, it's a waste. It's waste. They, they're yeah. using sugar and they waste the, 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 the alcohol as a byproduct of yeah, the yeah, fermentation yeah. process. The biochemistry is quite complex. And the, then I start to study this bacteria and try to use it to produce alcohol. That's what my master in science project. And funnily enough, the only other people in the world studying this bacteria was a professor from University of New South Wales. Oh, really? And I used to read all her papers and I never, Australia was kind of in a faraway country that you don't think of it at that time, right? And I remember listening to this, reading her, her paper and knew, knew the publication about using that bacteria for fermenting alcohol. And funnily enough, I did my PhD at UNSW. You did that in Australia? Yeah. Uh, I, I under did, her? No, no, different. She was yeah. she wasn't your supervisor. No, no, I didn't ever met her. I come here by other means. I just got a permanent visa when I was in Brazil because of my scientific background. When I finished uni, I got a job in a city, the capital city where I was born. There was this professor that used to work in Canada, and he came back to Brazil, and he established this lab to do research on parasitology. At the university. On what? Parasitology. What is that? A disease called by parasites. Parasites, yeah, right. Yeah. In, in animals? In human. In human. Yeah, oh, there's right. a lot of parasites in Brazil. Uh, in, in like, no, they investigate this parasite from Africa that was taken to Brazil with the, with the Portuguese brought the, no, slave the slaves to, to Brazil. And there's some local parasites as well. 
And this center that I worked was one of the biggest centers of research in parasitology in Brazil. And he also has his own lab doing um, pregnancy tests and uh, any other tests for you know, pre-pregnancy. And at that time, they discovered this DNA sequence that you could investigate the gene of people and, and identify paternity. It later on became called that fingerprinting, DNA fingerprinting, that today is using identification of crimes as well. And we, I was in charge of developing that technology with him. There were some PhD students, and my job was to transfer the technology from the academic setting to his private lab in the city. And he was doing paternity tests that no one ever heard before because at that time, the only way to confirm paternity was by blood test. But you can only, you can only exclude paternity. You cannot confirm it. With fingerprint, it becomes a major... So just, just go back on that. What you, yeah. what you mean by that is if I, if I got A-type blood and the yeah. child's got B-type blood and the, the, the woman has got, I don't know, some other type yeah. O... Um, that excludes me. That excludes you from being the father. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. there was no way to prove... The inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fingerprint was like 100, no, 99.99% certainty that you were the father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we become very popular. There was newspaper, people would come to the lab, and it was a major event at the time because that was totally unheard of. And uh, we developed this technology in Brazil and becomes probably one of the first commercial labs, I believe, in the world to actually do this service for other people. Doing The technology comes from England originally, but I don't believe there was any commercial lab doing that no regularly at the, the time, except that one in Brazil. So, so you guys come up with the application? Yeah, and we, 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 what we did is we developed lots of uh, innovation and technology to make it uh, commercial, yeah. right? Because there's a big difference doing something at uni and then doing commercially. And there was a time, actually, there was some times where you would be doing... 10 paternities per week. And at the time, it was like 10,000 US dollars per paternity we would be charging. Can you imagine? <laughs> at that time, 10,000 dollars was a lot of money. And he built a shoot lab in the city. And um, I was kind of the, the guy running the technical lab. I was very young and he, he took me almost like, a, for him, I was like promising career to drive his business for him and grow the business. He was very, it was very nice. I really own him a lot of what I learned today. Take us to your PhD. What was your PhD about? In cancer oncology. Yeah. Here so, in Prince of so, Wales Hospital. So why did you do, it sounds like a lot different to what yeah, you were doing. Yes. <laughs> uh, when I arrived in Sydney, I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any even English well or anything. My English was just to read scientific paper. And I arrived here and I, got the, I arrived here on a Wednesday. I got a job on a Monday at uh, University of Sydney. This professor offered me the job as a research assistant, because she was very interested in the technology that I brought with myself. Because I was not very keen on the job, she offered me to do a PhD as well as I was get the job. It was a kind of enticement for me to accept yeah, yeah, yeah. the position. And the, the PhD was in medicine. Yeah. And it was very funny because I arrived there, I arrived here, didn't know anyone, didn't know anything. And a few weeks later, I was in a meeting at Prince of, Royal Prince of the Hospital, talked to all these clinicians, talking about remission of cancer, patient cancer. I was like, geez, I had no English, let alone this, <laughs> this expertise of that. But I think in six months, I was very comfortable. And then I started to find my own way and learn the, 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 you know, the, the jargon, the importance of the science. And I also learned to surf. I started to do body surfing in Bronte and Tamarama. I, I used to be a swimmer in Brazil. I used to play water polo and, and I used to be a very long distance swimmer. 
Brazil's always had good water policy. Yeah. And then life started to, to become good. But I felt at the same time, being in the lab, I was, I was in the lab. At, the lab later on moved to Prince of Wales Hospital, and I, my PhD transferred to University New South of South Wales. Because I was an engineer, I have become like the guy that would do everything for the people in the lab. And I was not familiar with people that are not engineers because biologists has a different approach totally. to science. Yeah. yeah. And at that time, when I was in my PhD, I started to learn a lot of uh, technology here in Australia. And I started to see how powerful medical research is in Australia. And I always, my father used to say that uh, laziness is the mother of all invention because I used to always want to do something faster. I used to be very inventive. I used to try to do things that sometimes some people would read my scan of a document of a printout of an instrument. People think that I had a robot because I used to do the setting of the loading of the sample exactly the same time, like if I was a machine. So well, can I just ask you a question? Just, just yeah. I want to go back a step. Uh, so you combined um, biology or medicine yeah. with engineering, yeah. which is sort of like biomedical engineering, yeah. which they now have faculties <laughs> doing that. Yeah. Sydney University does. Yeah. They're the biomedical engineering faculty now. Would you see yourself more as a an engineer or a because they're, they're different, I, they're different but, disciplines. Yeah. I think I'm much stronger on the biology side. Right. Right. I'm very strong. and I have very, very strong genetics. And mo molecular biology is very strong as well. And I have very strong cell biology. I, 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 I went very deep. My PhD was very deep on the nuclei of cells and how the, the, the cancer, nuclei. Yeah. Yep. How the cancer actually process of forming a cancer happened. And my whole study was based on what happened with the molecules in the center of the nuclear that control the cell division. And I remember when I was doing my PhD, we were in the forefront of that. There was, there was no knowledge beyond what we were doing at Prince of Wales Hospital. I was studying the gene called P53. It's a gene that at the time used to be called an oncogene, a gene that caused cancer. But later on, they found that actually the P53 was the guardian of the genome. It protects you from becoming having cancer. It signal for the cells to kill itself. Which is the opposite. The opposite. Then they, they, they rename it as a tumor suppressor gene. Yeah, That's a name that so it's gone from onc what they called? oncogene, uh, oncogene to well, the, tumor suppressor gene. It was the opposite. And just to give you an idea, when I started my PhD, I remember doing the pre-PhD literature review, there was 37 papers on P53. I believe that when I finish my PhD, if I'm right, I'm not very good with numbers, but something like 500,000 papers on P53 alone during the time I was there. So I think you should explain just a little bit about that. So well, what Julia was saying now is that um, um, when you become a candidate for a PhD, you have to get confirmation. And yeah. prior to that, you've got to do a literature review, which yeah. means you basically read everything on, yeah, the, everything on, the, the, everything on the topic yeah. and you've got to review it all. Yeah. And you've got and to you submit become, it to your supervisor. And you're supposed to be the one that knows more about the subject than anyone yeah. else. Well, more right? about what everyone else has written <laughs> yeah, so, far. Everyone so far. And then you've got to come up with something novel. Yeah, and I have to come up with a uh, research project. Yes, which is novel though. Yes. It, it yeah. can't be the same as everybody else yeah. has already said. It's got to be something and, new. And, and the other thing that you have to bear in mind is after, when you get the job, you have a grant that lasts for one year or two. Because my PhD was part-time, was not a full-time. Right. My PhD was supposed to last like no, eight years or something. Mm. Like I, I was, I was, it was a very small time dedicated to the PhD than I would if I was a full-time student. And I have to come up with money for myself as well. It means that I have to come up with idea to the hospital or the, the apartment where I work for to raise a grant. And then after two years, I have to come up with a grant proposal and then submit it to the university. And then the university applied to the National Health and Research Medical Council. What I was trying to do is to see 
what would be the effect of ionizing radiation, such as UV light or X-ray, on the process of a cell become cancerous in, at the molecular level, at the nuclear level of the cells? What happened when I expose my cells to X-ray? Because the study we're doing was about bladder cancer. And most of the bladder cancer become very resistant to ionized radiation. That was the, the current treatment at the time, the more common treatment. People would be exposed to uh, X-ray or gamma rays at the hospital. And what I did is I started to grow cells in the lab, and then I will take it to the Prince of Wales Cancer Treatment Center. I have to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to be there before patients arrive to treat all my cells with very high dose of X-ray and then continue growing them and, and then go to all the, the molecular pathways inside the nuclear to see what happened with those molecules in terms of expression of genes after being treated with X-ray. And at the time, P53 was supposed to trigger the killing of those cells. If the cell has normal P53, the cells will kill itself and die. If cell has no normal P53, it means that the pathway was faulty and the cells continue to survive. But what I found is that some cells has normal P53 and was still not dying. And that was totally against the theory at the time, the, the, the wisdom. Conventional the thinking, yeah. yeah. And I remember some cells actually thrive after I treat them with X-ray. And I send a paper to a British journal, I don't remember which one, and the reviewers send it back to me, say, oh, this paper is totally wrong, you have to do it because your cells are thriving on X-ray. And in 50 years of my life, I never seen anything like that. And it was a big shock for me because uh, no, the idea is I did everything wrong. And then I started to do every game, then check all the dots and do the experiment again, wake up early, do lots and lots of cells. And, come up with the same results. And they finally, they actually published it. And that was the result of my PhD, what we found. When you think about it, in hindsight, yeah. Julia, I want to get into what your business is and because yeah. it's slightly different to all this. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, irrespective of that, what do you think all this academic work, mm. or how did it contribute to what you do today? Did it give you a, obviously gave you a framework, yeah. uh, an intellectual framework, mm-hmm. but did it give you a way of thinking? I mean, what, what did yeah, it do for you? I, th- I think... As a scientist. Yeah. That heavy study of, especially engineering, heavy mathematics, physics, calculus and everything, I tell my friends now that I believe those, um, those mathematics is like leg press for the brain. That's intense studies of mathematics. Actually, I believe now that it probably rearrange your brain cells and mm. make you much more capable of understanding not only the mathematics, but the overall aspect of the world. You become much more insightful, much more visionary about everything you do. And when I started to join that with the very heavy, very deep biology, molecular science and understanding of biology, I think it meant that understanding of everything around you. And then for that to build a business is a very short leap. Take me now to what you do. Okay. Now, now how did you get into yeah. what you do? Because it's, it's quite different. Yeah. The reason I created the IVF company in Brisbane is to generate cash for me to finance the 3D printing business in Sydney. Right. Because when I started the 3D printing project in Sydney, I didn't have any money. And then I created that company in Queensland to give me capital and cash because I have to pay for the engineers, for the university grant, and it was a lot of money. And then I have to find a way to pay for that because I didn't have any capital. And that I create the IVF business. And then soon after I created that, the business started to generate cash that allowed me to pay and run the business here in Sydney for until 2017. What the hell got you interested in 3D printing? Like, how did that come about? Uh, when I was doing my PhD and when I was in Brazil, there was a technology that came up 
at the time, the amplification of DNA called polymerase chain reaction called PCR. PCR allows you to amplify molecules of DNA that you found to enable you to do an experiment with that. Just imagine when you have those CSI crime scenes, you have DNA on the, on the table or something like that. That DNA is not enough for you to do any analytical test. It's very little. Uh, what you do is you put that DNA that you get, let's say you have a few molecules, and you put in a tube, and then you have an enzyme that go and start to replicate that. One becomes two, two, four, four, eight. After 45 cycles, you have enough quantity of DNA that you can do analytical test and do the fingerprinting and found, put in a gel and run. That technology happened around mid-80s and was the only technology that I've found in my lifetime that has a revolution on medical research. People don't realize, but everything you do today in most of research, you use PCR. There's, you go to a lab, there's 10, 20 PCR machines. If you go to a hospital to do a test, this COVID is very likely to be a PCR test and you have uh, a, a pathology test. You have everything, even the Human Genome Project, use that PCR technology to sequence the human genome. That becomes a huge revolution. Today is a, you know, billions and billions of dollars industry worldwide. I never thought anything come close to that except 3D printing. It means every experiment we're doing with cells in the lab that I did, anyone does, using a model that's very far away from what you have in your body. It means that if I'm testing a cancer drug and I put a, a drug on top of a layer growing cells, every single cell is exposed to the drug at the same time, the cells are going to be killed and that's fine. But if you have a tumor, you have a solid tumor, very dense with all the different cells, it's not just one cancer cell, there's a lot of support cells and uh, different type of cells there. When the patient gets the drug, it doesn't infiltrate into the tumor because the cells in the outside, they start to break down the drug. By the time it goes to the cells in the middle, the drug is already not effective anymore. And that's why you have what they call multi-resistance drug for cancer. People don't get treatment. And to produce those three-dimensional format of cells is very time-consuming, is very manual, very... For testing, you mean? For doing experiments. If you do if it, yeah. experiments, no, yeah. no one do that because it's almost impossible to do the number of... So let me just go back, because yeah. let me just put it in lay, yeah. lay yeah. terms, yeah. Like, what I think is right, and tell yeah. me if I'm wrong. So prior to your, your thinking was that you were looking at like a, a layer of cells that were being tested, but with various treatments for yeah. cancer. And what you were saying is no, a cancer is actually like a like it might be a, like a, a blob, a blob yeah. um, which is not a not not necessarily flat. Yeah. By the way, that flat thing is three D, but it doesn't matter. It's really like one. It's one like layer, two yeah, dimensions. Yeah, it's yeah, one layer. It's yeah. like it's like a, an X and a Y axis. Yeah. But you've gone and said, "Is that no? Hang on, these are a blob. So there's three more like is a big three dimensions, yeah, more like drawn out, hundreds of cells or thousands yeah. of cells. And, yeah. and and therefore, in order to test that properly, I need to be able, someone needs to be able to produce a three D blob. Of cells. Of cells yeah. to be tested. Yes, to okay. do any experiment, that any investigation. Yeah. That makes sense. That has already been proved very clear. The, 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 the discussion about if 3G is better than 2G is already, the, the ship already sailed. There's mm. no scientists that dispute that. But everybody continue growing cells on this plastic surface because that's the only way they can do it today. Yeah. There's no other way to do it in a large scale. And it's very manual. You have to have very good eyesight and you have to spend hours. Layers and layers, yeah, layers and layers. Yeah. Now, there's, a tech, there's few technologies to do that today. You know, people sell it. but And then he has to go then fish those cells with the hand pipette yeah. and then put them in a matrix that mimics the matrix right. that you have in your cells. Right. Every single cell grow into a matrix. It they sounds mix. very manual. Yeah. And most of them, 
uh, different size, different shape, different location. It's very, very not reproducible at yeah. all. It's very difficult. It means that people don't do it today because it's very manual, very time consuming, yeah. and very inefficient and not very reproducible. And expensive. Right? And this applies to anything you're doing in biology. You need to have models that you can replicate many times over, and you can do it fast, and you can do it simple. And then I mentioned to you that biologists doesn't like, they're not engineers, they're not going to be mm. building something like that. No, they want something that I give to them and they play. And that's why we call our technology plug, print and play. It's there, right? We've done the work for you. Mm. Once you get that printer, the, the scientists just get, we supply with every information they need. They just need to get the cells and design the experiment and then the machine does the rest. They push a button and off it goes, right? When I was doing my PhD, I could think about that, but there was no... The technology was not ready to do that yet. It's very complex to, to do 3D printing. And there was no one even talking about that before. I was totally, no. I was just in my head. 2011, I, get, I have enough of waiting. And, and I said, you know, Julio, you're going to do this, you're going to do now or never. And then I, hired, I used to work for a large U.S. company before where I learned business. I used to work for a company that supplied the scientists. And in that environment, I became the sales manager, division manager, and I ran the business and I grew the business in Australia. The lady that used to be my marketing manager, I hired her to do a marketing research to scientists in Australia to see if they would be interested in a, in a technology like that. Uh, the result was like, everybody wants, can I have it tomorrow? It was really, you know, really positive. And then I have to actually pull the plug on the marketing research because I felt that I was misleading people with the belief that this something it's coming. is it's coming, right? But during those, those um, interviews with scientists, I met professor at the University of New South Wales that they just thought this is this is a revolution. I want to work with you on that, Julio. And we, I initially paid for a small research project myself to start because I I know university don't just they get a lot of people coming with a lot of ideas and want them to do the work, but they don't put the money where the mouth is. Mm. I decided to put my money where my mouth is to start their work. And as a consequence, the university started to discuss that with me and we started to do a little proof of concept. And we got this Australia Research Council called Linkage Grant. It's a very difficult grant to get and we were very, you know, very pleased to get that grant and it was uh, around a million dollars in funding. I have to contribute um, 30% or 40% of that. The university come with a bit and the government covered the rest. That's what I have to create the company in Queensland to pay for that grant. <laughs> Your share. <laughs> My share, yeah. Well, we've got to go to the break, but when I come back, I want to talk to Julio a little bit more about InVenture, like what it actually does. What is the product? Talk about 3D printing, but yeah. most people listen to think of 3D printing where they, you know, you print a plastic hand yeah. or you print a, 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 you know, a leg, you know, like a knee, a knee yeah. joint or something like that. Your 3D printing biological matter. Yes, is that right? It print cells. Print, cells. It print yeah, biological stuff, yeah. R- yeah. real stuff, not yeah. not plastic. Yeah, it's real. And they're alive. And they're alive. Okay, yeah. so um, you better sort of explain that yeah. to everybody <laughs> and to me, by the way. Yeah. How do you print these live cells into a, a blob? There is two technologies that would, you know, you see 3D printing in the media everywhere. Yeah, yeah. There's a hype about that. Most of this technology uses a very simple process called extrusion. Imagine you have a syringe mm-hmm. with a needle mm-hmm. and you fill that syringe with a gel. You make a gel and you mix your cells with this gel. Right. That protect the cells and keep it clean and 
food and everything. And then you press the needle. And then what happened is that little gel would come on the edge of the needle. And then you can move it around. And then yep. you do... Make a shape. Make a shape. That's called extrusion. Yep. We didn't want to do that. Which is how most plastic... Yes. Stuff is, is, all, is printed. All the 3D print that you see printing is cells is using a hacking to that plastic. Actually, the people actually got that print used for plastic. Yep. They just changed the syringe to print cells. I didn't want to do that because that doesn't give you the precision you need, the speed you need, because, it, because the needle has to touch the surface and run around. Just to give you an idea, if we do uh, one printing job that we do, one printing run that we can do in one project, for example, if I do that stop and start, stop and start, it might take nine to 10 hours to print something. Which is part of the problem with 3D yeah. printing. But if I do it my printer, it might take 10 minutes. Tell me, tell me how you've done it. How did you solve we that have, problem? We have a ejection of drops coming out of the nozzle the same way you do in your inkjet print in your home. The drop come out of, the, you have a suspension of cells, a liquid inside the nozzle. And you open the, and close and push a drop of 20 nanoliters. That's, That's uh, not very big. A thousandth of a microliter. Yeah. <laughs> That's a thousandth a thousand of a milliliter, right? That drop comes out, as I said, you can eject a thousand of those drops per second. Right. And the print is moving very fast. It means that the whole thing has to be extremely precise. The same as you have in your paper. No, no, mm. the paper, you have drops coming out and eating. And wow. they produce this extremely fast. And that drop has to fall in the right place because your eye will be able to see if the drops fall in the wrong place. You saw you'll be blurry. The color is not going to be sharp. Right? The same technology applied to us, the drops would fall in the right place in the right time. And then as, as soon as it come out of the, the nozzle, it meets with another drop that has to meet together and the solidify and stay in place. We have two drops coming together out at the same time, one nozzle eject one, the other one, and they have to merge. And then as soon as they merge, you have a microsecond reaction where those reagents stays, it become a gel that was liquid before. Then imagine you have a suspension of cells. I don't know if you saw the video in our website. This, they, they eject the drops and they hit each other and they jellyfy and stay. Then you can make another layer and another layer and another layer. And there's a huge science behind this bioink because you need to protect the cells to stay in place. Different cells have different requirements. means every cell that we print, every cell type, for example, if I want to print a lung cell type, I need a different different bioink. If I want to print, a, for example, a, a breast cancer cell type, they need a different bioink because they have different needs for different stiffness of the gel, different nutrients that they need, or different what we call uh, bonding. I don't know if you know, cells likes to attach to things. If they don't have attachment sites on the bioink, they're not going to attach to anything. It's full away. They just stay as a blob instead of stretching themselves right. because they're going to put fingers trying to find and then they found another cells. And we use all this knowledge to produce what we call a library of bioink. Means that what we're developing is we have a patent of bioink that we develop that no one has, that enable ourselves to to behave the way we want, dependent of the experiment the scientists. But what we'd be doing is, we'd be creating ongoing. For example, we have we continue research with the UNSW. We got another ARC linkage grant to continue to develop those libraries of bioinks. Because the wealth of the knowledge we have is their capacity to produce different bioink for different projects, different research. I think what you're saying is the various parts of the body that you want to test or experiment on yeah. have different requirements in terms yeah. of, um, you know, 
the genetics, or well, not yeah. the genetics, the DNA, or yeah. the, not not real DNA, but the, how it's built and, the and how it hangs together. The, what they call the cell biology. And how it hangs together. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. to give you an example, uh, it's known that breast cancer cells, the prognosis of the disease is associated with the hardness of the tumor. Very very stiff tumor is usually associated with poor prognosis. When you do poor prognosis yes. means bad prognosis. Like, yeah. yeah. When you when you doing research with breast cancer cells and you want to investigate what what you want to know is what caused those cancer cells to become much more aggressive when they are in a very hard surface. There was a genetic for that. Let's say that you believe that there is five hundred genes that might be the ones that cause that effect. If you found out the gene that's causing that problem, you could then come up with a drug that inhibits that gene, means that you cause the cancer to become less aggressive. But before you have to identify which gene is associated with that aggressiveness of the tumor, we can then devise our biowing to have a large variation of the stiffness of the gel to let the scientists study which gene is associated with that aggressiveness of the stiffness. Because we have 500 variations? Uh, no, sorry, I'm just yeah, yeah, putting yeah. the number. That, that's an but example. We, but yeah, we yeah. would have those variations. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's what the power of this technology. We can it's more tailor. We can tailor the the biowink make what we, we use the word tunable. We can tune it to anything people want to do to get that result. At the moment, to do this experiment again is extremely manual. Take weeks and weeks of work. Be very tired. Then you can do large number of experiments. You can do like ten or twenty experiments in a day. Things that would take you a year. If a patient has a tumor and they take a biopsy of that tumor, and if you go to a doctor for treatment, let's say that there's many, many options of a drug, many different drugs that the doctor could use to treat that patient. Today, it's very difficult to identify in advance which of this treatment is best for this patient. From the biopsy? From the cancer, the patient, yeah. Right. Yeah, so like on Monday, I had a biopsy, right? Yeah. I had a biopsy on my esophagus. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Um, what, what happens? Let's say they found, then, they then found I, a cancer cell. And then, I, and then have a cancer cell. And then I split all those cancer cells. I, cancer cells, they grow together because the matrix that you can dissolve that matrix. Then you have the cells individually floating on the solution. Right. And then you can put that in my printer. And then I print, let's say, a thousand little blobs of models of that tumor that you, yep. you your patient have. Right. And then I have the option to go and get all the drugs that are currently available to treat that patient and put them on those models. So treat it remotely, not not on the on yeah. the, what we call a ninety-six well plate or yeah. three-eight-four well plate. And then after a while, you can see which drug kill that tumor well, on, a 3G, on a three D format. Because at the moment they're doing this again in a two G that kill everything easily, yeah. but doesn't kill the one in a three G. Yeah. And then let's say that from that. 20 drugs, five killed the tumor in 3D, even the cells inside protected, the other 15 didn't. Mm. means that that saves the, the clinician because if a patient is start to be treated with cancer drugs, there's a lot of side effect. Mm. If you go to one treatment fails and then you go to the another one fails, the other one, by the time you reach the treatment that's ideal for the patient, the patient is already too debilitated to benefit. Or could be from dead. That. Yeah means that that can help. That's not kind of guarantee, but actually help at least give a little bit of a guidance to the clinician. And how long does this take though? Because are you saying to me though that this 3D printing of these cancer blobs yes, yeah. um, allows the clinician to- Would allow. It's not, it's not there yet. Yeah, yeah. Will allow the clinician, yeah. the clinician to treat, use all the various drugs that treat these sorts of cancers 
and to work out which one is the most effective to treat the whole blob as opposed of that to something specific on a, patient. Oh, that specific patient yeah. for that specific cancer. Yes. Yes. Yep. That's that's yep. that's called personalized medicine. Personalized and medicine. And that has a very strong already evidence that there is very literature that is already, but there was no tool to produce this in this scale. Yeah, because, because it was all 2D, yeah. 2D before. Because you could get the result in a week. Yeah. So I was going to say, what is the result now? What well, do you think the result will be when, once this personalized medicine becomes a real well, thing? First, we need to do an experiment to show that there's a correlation between the treatment and the result for the patient. Yep. To do that, we have a good collection of tumors from the past. We have large history so of good, tumors. Right. We could use them to do a pre, you get those tumors back. Okay. Do they keep the tumors? They? Yeah, they, they keep samples. No, oh, very right? And they know the outcome for the patient. Right. It means we could go and do a study from the past. Yep without knowing the result from the patient, yep. blindly, yeah, yeah, yeah. tell the people this is what we found and this is the drug and then correlate that with what the patient outcome was and then say, oh, there is a, there is a correlation there. And yep. that's some, there are some that would evolve uh, our study and we are very keen to go ahead with, with that. Okay. The beauty is because this machine is so uniform, anything you do here is replicated in London and New York and Massachusetts and Boston. Yep. It means that we could get this done, have the machine everywhere and people use the same machine, the same thing means that you get much stronger. You know, like when you do experiment, yep. you have to have a smaller arrow. Yeah, yeah. means that you have a much less well, error of... You just want a high confidence level. Yes. That it works. Because yeah. the, the, the technology is very precise and very yeah. reproducible. Yeah. Because one of the biggest problems in medical research is reproducibility. I might do an experiment in Sydney. Someone tried to do that in New York and they cannot reproduce what I found here. Right. Because manual human, the human side of it is very, very variable. The machine remove lots of that. Yeah. Take the human side of it. Because yeah. remember that guy yeah, yeah, at New South Wales the, the, yeah, doing yeah. the manual blobs? Yeah, yeah. He might make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Without knowing. Or he might be an expert and no really great at it and someone else overseas yeah, might No, be he might make good. one blob that is this size, the next one is this size. Yeah, yeah. Like there's this the so machine he, he, everything is the same. So it yeah. Produce through uniformity. Everything is the same. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's where that's where is the machine prototype or is it actually produced? We producing the next 10 machine we make is the commercial final. Right. The moment everyone's using is a prototype. Right. We now close what they call the engineer stem is called close the design mm -hmm. and we have orders it and we have now start to make here in Alexandria. The whole machine is made here in Sydney. Right. And, and, and I mean, you don't have to make millions of these machines. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it'd be nice if you got an order for a million, but yeah. um, in order to go to the next stage of... Um, Testing, you, what do you need, 20 more machines around no, the world? We, we, we believe that, uh, my view is, uh, we, as I said, we, we have got to make 10. 10. Commercial one, but we can make, we can, it takes us uh, two weeks to assemble them. And um, we, we believe we can have the capacity to assemble, no, probably 200, 300 a year where we are in Alexander today. Then if it become bigger, we need to expand. Uh, if you sort of had a thousand of these yeah. floating around the world in different places and then all the information was getting correlated yeah, and, and gathered. Can, and the beauty is the machine can talk to each other as well. Totally. We developed this whole thing of the people can talk so to each other. Yeah. Well, just to give an idea, the PCR machine, when I first got one, we used to like to almost like, you no know, put in a, in a shrine and you know, the boat with every day because it was like, you no know, God in, mm. for us, right? I see this technology going to the same way. Today, a lab would have one, but you no, know, few on the track, you might go to a lab, there'll be 10. Because what happened is when people start to discover the power of this, because scientists are very conservative. Because at the moment I can go and talk to anyone, people say, oh, that's nice, that's beautiful. But, but when they, for example, some of the scientists that have been used this machine, when they go to conference in Germany or Canada or US, 
and they present their research work to the audience. What they found, they tell me, is most of the questions they get is not about the science that they're talking about. People start to ask about, oh, where can I get this printer? Because the science outside of the printer is, is the same. Because the printer is the thing that makes a the difference. The printer is make it different. Make yeah. it. And the other thing that is important to notice, when you're doing those models that the scientists do manually, you can, yeah. there are very few models you can produce. Our printer can do more that no one can produce today because it has the ability to put different cells in different locations because it's known that a tumor doesn't have only the cancer cells into it. People think that you just have a blob of cancer cells. You have all those cells that are normal cells that are there and those cells actually support the tumor. They protect it and they, they like you know, fibroblasts and they have some epithelial cells. They have a lot of normal cells all mixed. That technology would allow you to produce those models. So much does, your, does your 3D printer produce all those other cells as well? Yes, you can put those cells. The scientists grow the cells and then they put them in a printer. Yep. Let's say you want yep. to put 10 different cells, oh, yep. no, sorry, five, five. They can then grow those five different cell types and then they can, the printer would allow them to put them in the arrangement that they want. So really what you're talking about here, is, if I could just sort of summarize it, you're talking about using 3D printing sort of technology, yeah. but with a whole lot of refinements, yeah. <laughs> which is not um, uh, extruding something, as, yeah. as opposed, it's got a, a different type of technology yeah, in terms drop of drop on demand. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you're you have the ability to effectively build a, a lump of cancer yeah. in a three D sense, and that's what we call model, model. because the scientists, because no, like everything, you have to create something that you can use as a model for the big the big picture, right? Yep. And we actually we, we realize that we are not a three D printing company; we are a three D cell culture model company. 3D cell what? Cell culture. The printer is just a tool to get Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, so you yeah. use a printer, but with your own technology, by the way, your yeah. own physical technology, to actually build a model of a cancer blob, which has yes. all sorts of cells in it, including yeah. the cancer cells, yeah. and then allows you to do lots of those. Yeah, and, you, or, and, and very or, fast. And, and fast, very, very complex. But you can then do the testing and experiments with all yeah. the drugs to work out which one works best on that particular individual, which yeah. means personalised medicine. Yeah. Which but, is, is that a new thing, personalised medicine? Uh, it's been around for a while, but they're growing them on, a, again, you have the same problem, you're growing them in a two-dimensional surface with a single layer of cells. That doesn't really reflect the reality of the tumour in that patient. Doesn't so it's really personalised reality medicine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what but, but one thing that um, is very important to notice, this is just the beginning of that, right? Because there be models, for example, we could create those cell models for people to investigate the, uh, how the coronavirus infects the lung cells. We actually apply for a grant to produce those lung cell models, and then we can make large number, because at the moment the technology that exists to produce the cell models for lung for people to infect with the virus are not very efficient. We have applied for a grant to produce those lung models in order for people to infect them with coronavirus and then treat with drugs that is yeah. already in the market because then you can produce large number of diseases and get a lot. Let's say we have 20 drugs that is already available in the market that people are already using. And then you can use those lung models to see which drug actually really helps the patient. Mm. And the, the importance of that is when a drug is already in the market, is already using for human, it has gone to a clinical trial and people already know the safety of the drug. Mm. The thing that takes the longest to bring a drug to the market is all those clinical trials. If the drug is already available and you just found that it helps with the treatment of lung, it speeds the time it takes for you to go and treat the patient. It means that we, we want to create the lung model to sell to, to supply to well, the That's interesting because right now, 
given how this coronavirus just yeah. hit us all of a sudden, we need speed, we yeah. need certainty, yeah. we need uniformity, yeah. and we need to be able to have it spread all around the place. And yeah. it was not just in Australia, but you need to have it done everywhere. Because yeah. yeah. so, everybody might be a bit different too. Might, might be a different virility yeah. in terms of what happens in um, Rome, compa- Italy, compared to here in Australia. So, Julio, I mean, I, I, these things, are, science always fascinates yeah. me, but um, I guess we, we've run out of time, to be yeah, honest with you. But like, <laughs> so um, your business has effectively, using 3D technology, yeah. you've been able to replicate what a cancer blob looks like yeah. in a 3D sense as opposed to a nice flat surface, where, which is probably not realistic. And it's not just about cancer, as you say, it's just about building even lung cells which you can infect with the coronavirus and actually uh-huh. work out, see which treatments yeah. work best on that. So, and, and you're not at the point yet we're about to commercialise, but you're still going through I know, the, we already sold machines. You sold machines? So there's uh, the first place to buy it is the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Victoria. Okay, they're, great. They're very advanced. They're very, they've been the machine there for a long time. We have two at the University of South Wales that's with our partners. We have sold few already, right? We have one machine now in Ireland. There's a very strong interest from a, a research centre in Ireland. We have one machine in California, right? There's a very strong interest Any in there. Brazil? Uh, not one in Brazil, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we would we were planning to open an office in Ireland to be our European office and one in um, US because then we can just ship the printer and people put in place and install and train them online. Train online, yeah. And also have uh, you know problems and solutions online. Everywhere I go with this machine is kind of is very nice because it takes scientists. A few, I found it interesting. It takes some time for the head to get around what they can do because people don't believe it because it looks so. For many people, it looks unreal. They think like, no, that, that'd be nice, but they don't believe it because they still know they cannot do that. What's your right. website called? Because I want to send uh, people there. It's uh, inventure.life, the company name. Inventure.life. Yeah. Yeah. So um, go and have a look. At, there's a demonstration on there. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of videos. Yeah. There's a, we have a YouTube site as well, inventure.life. Inventure, that's I-N-V-E-N-T-I-A, yeah. Inventure. Dot life, L-I-F-E. Go and, have a look at, go and have a look at the demonstrations on there. Look, Julia, uh, I've been asking all the questions. So I always give her an opportunity to ask me one question. Have you got a question for me? I yes, don't, I don't do. Don't yeah. ask me a scientific <laughs> one, for God's sake. One question that I was thinking is, how do you think the world's going to become for companies like us, for example, after this coronavirus? You know, there's this huge upheaval in government funding. And uh, what do you think is going to be the world? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, I think it is – at a state, it's more a state level question. Yeah. So I, I think it comes down to state government, to, to be frank with you. Mm-hmm. Um, federally, federal government going to make sure there's plenty of money put in roads and bridges and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and, and job keeper, et cetera, but really a state government. So state government's going to look at science as something that act- can actually build jobs. And, and I think my view is um, you have to chase the governments that in, if you're talking about just Australia, you're going to have to chase the governments who want to put money back into science and to universities. Mm-hmm. My gut feeling is it's not it's not the coalitions, mm-hmm. governments, parties, it's the Labor parties. Um, not that the coalition is not interested in science. Under um, When Arthur Sinodinus, who's now the ambassador for Australia in Washington, when he was the minister for innovation and science, yeah. federally, under Malcolm Turnbull, there was a massive uh, move around science and yeah. technology. But that sort of dropped off under mm-hmm. the current government. The, the current government are less interested in that sort of stuff. And they're leaving because they, they consider the view the view is they should leave a private enterprise mm. and join a, yeah. a venture capitalist to invest in it. The, but they don't. They, they don't. They don't. But that's the government's Do view. Do you think they understand that it's not like if you have a very strong group of people with very deep knowledge and science, those people in itself come up with ideas and business. That's how it happened in Silicon Valley. 
but those people don't have the capital. They're not, most of the business like mine, and I, and I, I work for a large US multinational for many years, those companies, they're like dinosaurs. They don't come up with innovation. Mm. Innovation come up from little guys yeah, like yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. And the government has to make sure, they talk about in, investing side, but they have to understand that you need to help the little guys, the little business to oh, grow. No. But they won't the little engineers, the, 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 the biologists, to come up with that and support them to take the business. What they expect yeah. is they expect yeah. little people like you, the engineer, the, the inventors, yeah. the scientists, yeah. to go along to Janssen, uh, someone like Janssen yeah. Laboratories, yeah. and sit down with Janssen for Janssen to um, to fund you. That's Look how long it took me. I started this 2011. I have to finance all myself, uh, mortgage my house and do everything to take all the risk. To 2017, I got the first injection of capital from VC funds. Hmm. If I have not gone to that point, I you would not never have, got an injection. Yeah, I'll no, not. No. Be, and if I have not worked for a large multinational and yeah. learned the trade, I'll not be able to have the confidence to do that. Yeah, no. I'll not be able to create a company in Queensland that now is generating. I think uh, the yeah. Queensland piece is important, but yeah. especially if you're dealing with um, uh, QI, Q, uh, Queensland QI University, Mar- yeah. whatever it is, QI Queensland Mar- Institute of Medical Research. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're dealing with those environments, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a much more difficult to ask in New South Wales. Entrepreneurs. Once you become an entrepreneur, if 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 you are a listener, you end up getting into the luxurious position that uh, Julio is, and to some extent I am too. We have to pay forward what we've endured, what we've learned, what we've experienced to the new people, the new yeah. players, so that we can actually have innovation. Because if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. Government won't do it. Yeah. Thank you, Julio. That is brilliant. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.